judges. It um, it's a nice for a break because Joshua's chronological history. This is what's been going on. Judges is not like that. It is a it's a, it's historical, um, but the events are not chronological. And the the time of the judges went from the book of Judges and Ruth and the first part of First Samuel is it is it pretty much the timeline for the judges. So Ruth, when we get into that, it is happening during this time of the judges. Judges is not a feel-good book. You don't want to go to judges when you're not great, but it's a very valuable book for us to learn. Um, It's a book of judgment. The Canaanites had been for 400 years, their wickedness had been increasing, 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 increasing. And God's grace was just long-suffering, so now the time was for judgment, and he was going to use his, his people to do that, but he was also going to use the, the Canaanites to, to mold and shape his people. The Israelites failed to take over the promised land. They failed. Just, they didn't do it. God could have had them do it. He could have, he, God can do anything. But there were reasons why he allowed it to happen. On the human side, Israel's fail, uh, failure of coming in and being obedient and putting God first and clinging to him, and when they didn't do that, um, it was showing the Israelites that they couldn't do it on their own. They couldn't do it on their own. It was also letting the Israelites know that there's consequences when you turn away from God. Showing them their need for God. And Joshua 22.5 had told them several times over, but especially here, only be very careful to observe the commandment of the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. To love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his command and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and all your soul. To cling to God. So, They obviously didn't do that, but we have God. But God allowed this to happen where they didn't possess the whole land to show them those things, and also so God could show them and us who he is. He is a righteous, righteous God. He is a just God. He is a merciful God. And he answers his people when they cry out for him. He delivers them, but he also is instructing them in war. Two things the is, God wants them to get accomplished or in their heads during the judges period is this. Their need for God and the, side, and the righteous side of him and the um, learning how to do warfare. Many, many times I would think to myself as a younger Christian, okay, I walked an aisle, I got baptized, you know, I believe Jesus, you know, all that stuff. And then why, why, why can't he just make me perfect, right? Why do we have to deal with this stuff? He can do that if he wants to. Well, as I studied this, I started to realize the book of Judges is an analogy of the Christian life. It really is an analogy of our lives. We do this. So as we go through this, I want you to see the pattern of oscillation 
oscillating back before the people are faithful and they're blessed. Oh, they turn away and they're judged. Oh, they cried out and they're rescued. Oh, they are faithful and they're blessed. Oh, they turn away. And it's just a repeated cycle of what's going on. The layout of the book is chapter one is a condensed history of the, the judges period. So it can kind of stand alone. Chapter one can stand alone. Chapter two is another summary in a different vein, another summary of the time of the judges. And then we get into chapter three to 16 and we have the accounts, the historical accounts of the judges. Our books end at chapter 16 with Samson. The book of Judges goes on 17 to 21. We're not going to study those, okay? You can read them if you want to, but our questions don't go there. Chapter 17 to 21 is pretty much a account of how depraved they got. And it was pretty, it was pretty bad in there. And so we don't all go into a deep depression. We're not going to study that, okay? But it's in there to let us know that it can get to that point where we can just spiral, spiral down. Okay. So with that, we're going to get in here and look at the first chapter, the condensed history of it. And at this point... They don't have any national leadership happening. They were at a critical point. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who should go up first against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said to them, Judah should go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. So they didn't have a national leader. They didn't have Moses. They didn't have Abraham. They didn't have a patriarch. And they didn't have Joshua. So they inquire of the Lord like they should. It's interesting that God tells them Judah is going to be the first tribe. And when we have these names, Judah and um, Simeon and Ephraim and Zebulon, those men weren't actually there. It's, um, you know, it's personification. It's a, they represent, that was his descendants, his, his people, that was his tribe, his descendants, his kin. How's that? Um, so Judah, who came from Judah? Jesus did. Jesus did. So it's like the first one. He's going to go in, and they're going to fight and promise that they're going to get him the hand. And it's a cool thing because Judah says, okay, this is good. We're going to go ahead, and we're going to ask Simeon if he wants to join us in battle and go together. A beautiful picture of the church working together. We're not battling this on ourselves. The body of Christ You know, we support one another, we encourage one another. When one part of the body hurts, the other part of the body hurts. So they're going to join forces, and they're going to go in. And they had great victories, great victories. Um, They sought God's guidance, they obeyed, they worked together, and they had great results. A lot of conquering the land, you know, killing 10,000 people, moving on, and just they were just doing what God had asked them to do. They get down to verse 5, and they run into Adonai Bezik, who was a really mean guy. His name means Lord of Lightning, so it was a fearful name. Um, And he's mentioned in here probably as one of the meaner 
people they had to, or if we're looking at it as an analogy, the heavier, deeper sins that we deal with. And they chased him, and they pursued him, um, and when they found him, and the word found is like, it was like a hot pursuit, it was a terrible encounter, when they finally got to him, they cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Why do they do that? Well, if you don't have your thumbs, well, if you have to pick between the two, I think we'd rather be without our thumbs, because our toes, did you know that 40% of our weight is on our big toe? I didn't realize that. Helps us balance. Yeah, 40, you knew that. See, I'm learning stuff every day. 40% of our weight is on our big toe. So it, it disabled this man from being a warrior. He could not fight. You know, we can't grasp. I mean, we can learn to do some things, you know, without the thumb. But, but to be able to run and to be mobile, um, he was at a commission. And one of the commentaries I read said that if a family did not believe in war and did not want their son to go into wars, they would cut off his thumbs and fingers at birth so he wouldn't have to do that. Pretty nasty, huh? Anyway, so, so they do that to him, and it's interesting what this guy says, Adonai Bezek. He says, um, they took him to Jerusalem, Seventy kings, with their thumbs and their big toes cut off, used to pick up scraps under my table, as I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, he died there. Even these evil people in the land recognized the God of Israel. And we saw that in Joshua, didn't we? The God, oh, look what the God of Israel did. He parted the water. Look what he's doing for his people. So we see it through the times of the judges, too, that they acknowledge this God at the beginning, as a great God and, and, a, and a just God. Um, so many, many victories, many victories, 8 through 20, many victories given. We get down to verse 19, and Judah was doing well, and then all of a sudden, Judah cannot drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. It's not because they had chariots of iron. It's because they got to, well, they had chariots of iron, and they came in it thinking that they couldn't do it. Right there was their thing, because God got them out of chariots of iron before. Remember, he had them hamstring the horse's legs and burn the the chariots and stuff. He could have handled this, but Judah started to slip, and therefore, we see that he started to lose some battles, and the people, he wasn't cleaning them out like he was supposed to. He wasn't perfect. Okay, in the midst of chapter 1, we have this story that's repeated verbatim from uh, Joshua 15 with Caleb and his daughter. Remember, we just studied that. Verse 12, Caleb says, He who attacks uh, Deborah and captures it, I will give him Aksha, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenza, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he gave him Aksha, his daughter, for a wife. And she came to Athniel, her husband, um, and asked him to urge her, ask my father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, give me a blessing, since you have already given me 
the land of Negeb. Give me also some springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. Why is this in here? Why is it repeated verbatim? Of all the stories, why is this in here? I'm going to take a shot at it. And again, everything I say up here, you go home and you think about it. And you, you know, I'm not inspired word of God. This is just my take on it. Because chapter one is a summary and we can see that, you know, Judah was doing well and everything, and then they disobeyed, they didn't do the land, and then here's this little thing. I, I, I can see it as a, an analogy of prayer. Here's a daughter. Who are we? The church is the bride of Christ, right? God the Father gives the bride to Christ. No one comes to the Father ex- except, no one comes to the Son except to the Father, call him. We know that the bride is given to the son and the church is given. So here is God the Father with this daughter and he's giving her away in marriage. And she now is married to a Christ figure, right? Othniel. And she's talking to him and urging him, I, I'd like to have this. It's a petition. It's going to God in prayer. It's going behind the ripped veil into the presence of the, of, the, of the presence of God to do that. And she comes in humility. It's not just, oh, I'm going to pray for anything and stuff. She thought this through, that she would like to have this land. This would be a good thing, and she really wants this. So through her husband, through Christ, she approaches the Father, and she gets down off of her donkey. Ever hear the phrase, get off your high horse? in a humbled way, and, and acknowledges in gratitude to him, you've already given me the springs. You're such a gracious father. You've already given me this. Will you also give me that? I think it's a picture of how we should pray in amongst this, this uh, life that we have when we run up to things and we have the ability to go to God and ask him for things. So in the analogy of the Christian life, prayer is very important. You can chew on that a little bit and stick something in my suggestion box if you want to, you know, whatever, bombard me. But but there's something to kind of play around with, with that story inserted in here. Talking to God, if we're going to live the Christian life, we have got to be in constant prayer with him. We've got to be plugged in. We've got to be getting our resources from him. So we can see that Jude starts to weaken. He's tired. He lacks a little bit trust in, you know, God, what he's trying to do in sales. The chariots are throwing him off. He gets a little fearful, whatever. That happens to him. Then we move on to, in verses 21, to the end of this chapter. Um, And it points out the different tribes. Do you remember the sons of Jacob? Jacob had two wives, Rachel and Leah, right? And from them, we had the 12 sons. We have the 12 tribes coming in. So in verse 21, we have the people of Benjamin. And in verse 22, we have the house of Joseph. And Joseph's house, when he went to Egypt, in Egypt, he had the two sons, right? Ephraim and Manasseh. Those were the two tribes there. And these were, were, were Rachel's children. So we have them first in this, in this chapter. We have Benjamin could not drive out the Jebusites, and so they had to live with them. 
And we know that Benjamin was, had the city of Jerusalem in there, but we also know from verse 8 that Judah had already gone in there and conquered it, captured it, and struck it down with the sword and set the city on fire. All they had to do was come in there and habitate it and continue to clean out the people. But they couldn't do it. Benjamin could not do it. So they lived with, the, they lived with them. Constant military, constant spiritual danger for the rest of the time that they were there. And then the house of Judah, made up of Ephraim and Manassas, um, they had some success because God was with them for a while there. They um, have the story there where they went in, they had some spies, and they're looking around. They find this man who lived there, pagan. Show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. Big mistake. Compromising, right? Compromising with sin. Maybe they thought it was a good idea because that's what happened with Rahab. Doesn't matter. God told them to not make peace with these people, to clean them out. These people represent sin in our lives. You don't make, you don't compromise. So the guy showed him how to get in there and then they let the man go and he goes to the Hittites and he builds a city there and that becomes big, big trouble later on. They never cleaned them out. Okay. So even though the story seems like Oh, well, how wise of them. That's really, and they were nice to do that. As Christians, we do that. We compromise with sin all the time. Oh, well, they're, they're, those people are just doing that. It's not, you know, God says, no, don't do that. But, you know, whatever. And we start to make our own rules outside of God. So they failed to. They didn't do what they were supposed to do. Um, and then we get into Leah's sons. Um, some of them, remember, were, didn't cross over the Jordan. This isn't a complete list, but we have the tribe of Zebulon in verse 30. Zebulon, he didn't, um, he didn't move them out. Um, they lived among them, but they subjected them to forced labor. Okay, well, we're not gonna, we're gonna compromise a little bit here. We're gonna maybe use them for our economic advantage. Um, in our own lives, it's like, well, we shouldn't really be associating with that or really do that. Or that's really on the fringe. God's not going to be really happy with that. But you know what? We might be able to make some money out of that if we do something like that. So they were disobedient. Remember, incomplete obedience is disobedience. Then we go on to Naphtali, and he, um, he also fails in verse 33. They didn't drive them out, and they lived among them too, and they subject them to forced labor. Now, we're going to jump over for a minute to Exodus, Exodus 23, 29 to 30. God has told them this. God says, I will not drive them out before you in one year. Lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts, beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. It wasn't going to happen right away. They were going to continue to trust God, continue to walk in faith, continue to be, to be obedient and push these people out. It was a long, enduring walk with God. Deuteronomy 7.22, it says it again, The Lord your God will clear away these nations before you little by little. You may not make an end of them at once, lest the beasts grow too numerous for you. But the Lord your God will give them over to you and throw them into great confusion until they are destroyed. 
And he will give their kings into your hand, and you shall make their name perish from under the heaven. No one shall be able to stand against you until you have destroyed them all. They carved images of their gods. You shall burn with fire. You shall not covet their silver or their gold. Um, That is on them. Take it for yourselves. These you will be ensnared. They were an abomination to God. They needed to clear out the land. So they knew ahead of time this was going to be a long-term thing, which meant that we had to be persistent. We have to be persistent in our walk with God. It'd be nice if he could just poof and it's all gone. But that's the process of sanctification. So these people lived with the Canaanites under them. Asher, the Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites, but the Canaanites lived among the Zebulons. So here you see the reverse. You can see how you're going down with these different tribes, and with each successive tribe that's mentioned here, it gets worse and worse and worse for them. At first, they've got some, okay, we've got some you know, forced labor here. We'll take advantage of it. We've still got the upper thumb, but we're living with them. Then we have them, okay, they're, we're living amongst them. They weren't supposed to live amongst them. Start marrying their women, start taking on their habits, living amongst them. And then it flips, and then the Israelites were living among them. You see how bad that got? It wasn't just they were living among the Israelites as the Israelites were the minor, majority. But now, with Zebulon, I think it is, or Naphtali, then now it's all of a sudden... The Asherites. Now they are living among the Canaanites as the minority. And then we get to Dan. (laughs) Holy cow, Dan's not even on the land. They pushed him back up into the hill country, it says. Dan isn't even in the land because they have, they were persistent and they, people pressed them back into the hill country and they did not allow them to come down into the plain. They were persistent. So this isn't going good. So that is a summary of what was going on in chapter 1, kind of a condensed thing of what was going on. So, God wants them to learn two things. One, their need for God, and to persevere in their faith. Even though it's a long haul, whatever, keep doing that, but we just keep getting up and we keep plugging into God. And the second one, they needed to learn the art of war. They needed to learn to battle. There's a dangerous and seductive form of pacifism in the Christian life. When we ignore the reality of a spiritual battle, we think, oh, spiritual battle, oh, you know, sound system didn't work, Satan's in the thing, you know, it's even always that obvious. The battle is clearly described in Ephesians 6. We have to put on that armor of God all the time. And the analogy of it is in the book of Judges. So this pacifist attitude that we have with sin, this nonchalant, whatever, we need to get, we need to learn war. Okay? We don't make peace with the devil. Okay? So, see the idea. Let's go on to chapter 2 then. There's a summary here with chapter 2 now. Chapter 2, Israel's failure, but God has mercy. He has mercy. So he starts with telling them, reminding them of 
what he's done. We have the angel of the Lord that appears. Now, God the Father, we're not going to see him. He's invisible. But Jesus is the form of the invisible God. He comes in some kind of form. He doesn't come in the form of the the, uh, servant, because that was Jesus. But he manifests himself in some kind of a divine majesty so that they know that this is, this is God. This is the second person of the Godhead. We don't need to dwell too much on it. Deuteronomy 29, 29 tells us the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. We're just going to know that Christ makes an appearance here to them. And he reminds them of his faithfulness. I swore to you I would give you your father. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. For it is, what is this you have done? So now, I say, I'm not going to drive them out before you. But they shall become thorns in your sides. Remember Joshua 23? Thorns in their sides, goads in their eyes. I mean, it was a horrible thing. These people were just, there was no peace in this land. So God is telling them, you know, he has this pattern. He reminds us of his faithfulness and he confronts us in love. And he said, you know, if it's not going to go well. And, you know, we walk with God long enough to realize the consequences there are when we disobey. Again, we wish that God would just do all the work of Christian maturity for us. Just wake up, boom, I'm perfect, there's nothing go on. So why does God allow this process of sanctification to happen? Because he wants us to partner with him. The process of Christian growth is a partnership. And it shows us, because God knows, it shows us our heart, where our heart is. And God wants our heart to be with his heart. These people maybe would change and start obeying the judge again and doing the right thing, but their hearts were never in it. They didn't cling to God like they should have clinged to God. So God calls them out and says, okay, therefore, if you're going to do this, I'm not going to chase them out. We learned that from Joshua. If you're going to be intimate with something, if you're going to embrace something, I'm not going to rip it from you. You've got to let it go, and then I'll take care of it. Um, So the people, when they heard this in verse 4 and 5, they hear this, um, what the angel of the Lord spoke, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bacham. When I started to read that verse 5, and they called out to the name of the Lord? No, they called this place. They had remorse, but sorrow is not the same as repentance. Tears evaporate, right? Where their hearts are, what they were clinging to, I mean, they knew it was wrong, but they weren't at a point of actually broken repentance. So they sacrificed, they went through the motions of a sin offering, Um, And that was about it. So now we come in verse 6 and we see Joshua's mentioned. Well, we thought Joshua had died. Well, here we go. It's like a little retrospect back onto Joshua for the summary. Letting us know that Joshua was a true servant of the Lord. 
Joshua had lived for God, had put him first, was a great conqueror, a servant of the Lord, and he had died. Um, It's even mentioned in verse 8 that he was the servant of the Lord. Died at the age of 110, and they buried him in his inheritance in the hills of Ephraim, hill country of Ephraim. And that whole generation that was with him, they, people served the Lord throughout that whole generation. Um, and then there arose another generation who did not know the Lord or the work of the Lord. As long as they had a firsthand experience with it, eyewitness, whatever, They had a relationship with God through the things that happened. They had the faith strong enough to continue to be obedient. But once they quit applying that, the next generation, they didn't have the firsthand experience. They had no relationship with God on their own, except the stuff that they had heard about from their fathers. But they didn't apply it enough or believe it enough to start having God act really on their own behalf. They didn't have that personal relationship with God. They did not know, in verse 10, they did not know the Lord or the work that he had done. Not a head knowledge. They'd heard about it, but they didn't know it. They didn't experience it. And so, um, you know, it didn't go well for them. You need that. Verses 11 to 13 we continue to see how Israel continues to, to just fail. The people failed. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served Baals. They abandoned God. They went after these other gods. They bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger, and they abandoned the Lord and served Baal. I'm bumping around in there if you're following me. In verse 14, so the anger of the God was kindled. That's no surprise. God got angry at them, and he gave them over to the plunderers, and they plundered them, and he sold them. He gave them over to them, um, and it did not go well. And they were in terrible distress, and by their choice, terrible distress, living like that. Um, All they had to do was turn their hearts back to God. The goal wasn't to punish them. The goal was for them to repent. Remember, they're being tested. They're being tested here. Follow me and look at these great things that happen. Cling to me. You know, trust in me with all your heart and your soul. This is good. But if you don't, here's the test. If you don't, terrible distress. Okay? They are failing the test here. And we have the pattern. Sin, punishment, deliverance. Sin, punishment, deliverance. Here's the cycle going on. So in verse 16, the Lord raises up judges and saved them out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now, these judges weren't any, they were just normal people, but they had success and super abilities because the Lord was with them, okay? So the judges come, but they still didn't have a change of heart. They did not listen to their judges, and they whored after other gods and bowed down to them, and they soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commands of the God, for they did not do so. And whenever God would raise up a judge and get them out of trouble, he saved them again, okay, for a while, but then the people would grow, they would turn from that judge, and the Lord would hear their groanings and pity on them and come back, and this would be the whole thing going. The judge died, they went, fell back, and the thing is, each time they went through that cycle, 
of, okay, we're going to be good now. We're going to, try, we're going to follow you, God. We're going to apply your laws and, and really go after you. Never change a heart, though. We're just going to do the right thing here. And then they start slipping away into the bad stuff. And every time they, they, they fell, they would become more corrupt each time. They became more corrupt, verse 19, chapter 2, than their fathers before them. So we see this degradation, and that's why the end of Judges is pretty, pretty bad. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. This was their own doing. This was a stiff-necked person that's not going to bow to God. I'm going to do it this way. They did. They changed, and we can go through, as we go through Judges, we can see that it changes from they did, they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord to they did what was right in their own eyes. So God's not even in the picture anymore. Their ways became so corrupt. So what does God do in verse 20? The anger got so bad, he said, I will no longer drive them out. Okay, I'm going to leave them in the land in order to test you to see if you're going to walk or not with me. They didn't. So in verse 23, so the Lord left those nations, not driving out them quickly. He didn't drive them out quickly. Remember, he told them they weren't going to drive them out quickly, little by little. Okay? It's good to have the written word of God so we can keep in mind what it says, you know? It was probably written down in Exodus and Deuteronomy because Moses wrote it down. Little by little, I'm going to give you the land. Because if we clean it out too much from these people, the wild animals are going to come in, and then there's going to be the beast that you're going to have to be fighting them, and that's not going to be any good either. So let them be there. Let them kind of, you know. And as you guys grow stronger and multiply and stuff like that, you can push them out more and take over that land. But I guess the beasts were pretty bad. So that was God's plan. All right, so we have this cyclical pattern that's happening, um, and they keep falling, they keep falling. Sin was their own doing. Um, They needed to learn little by little. That's us. Isn't that us? That's just us. The longer we walk with God, the more we get into this word, the more we can see his hand in everything around us, the better it is. Let's wrap it up here in five minutes with the last chapter 3, because now we get into the story of some judges. And you can see God's sovereign hand in all this. Remember, he left the nations there to test the Israelites and to teach them how to do war. So, um, and it says that in verse 3. Now, these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. Okay, and he goes down. Um, it was the only... In verse 2, it was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. And as we read this, it's actual fighting people, flesh and blood. But we know we don't fight flesh and blood. We fight arguments that set themselves up against God. And that's the battle, that's the armor that we put on, that's the warfare that we do. And we don't fight it on a daily thing, do we? We, we kind of look the other way, or we get lackadaisical, or we let our guard down, or we compromise, or we get pressure from the outside world, and pretty soon we're compromising. So, he's wanting the Israelites to learn war. We have got to learn to war. Okay. So, let's learn to war. It starts out here. All right. Partnership with God. Um, 
His people needed to be warriors. Faith is a muscle that needs to be exercised. Did you know that? Faith is a muscle that needs to be exercised. Um, Talks about that verse, you know, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, what God has worked in, that fear and trembling. Work out your faith, work out what you believe, work. It's a present tense working thing to work. Work it out. And when you're, we're doing weights, okay, we'll do some weights. And pretty soon it's like, eh, I don't want to do any more. I'm getting tired. No, do some more. And then you know what happens? What happens? Starts to break down muscle, doesn't it? And that's shaking. That's shaking. And they say, I guess I believe them, that that breaks down your muscle and rebuilds new muscle. So through that shaking, that fear and trembling, you're building muscle. So when we push through with our faith and be obedient in times when it's hard to be obedient, when we choose to do that, that's building faith muscle. And then we can add on top of that, that glory has a weight to it. Can't remember where that was. It's coming off the top of my head now. The weight of glory. So the stronger we are in our faith, the more glory we can hold. What a miraculous idea that is, isn't it? If we're kind of weaklings, we're just going to sparkle a little bit. But if we really get that faith muscle strong, the weight of glory, reflected glory from Christ, the more we can hold. This is what he wanted his people to learn, the art of war. Okay, no one likes to struggle with sin. We don't like to struggle with sin. But it's good for us to battle that. It's good for, we may think it's easy just to compromise or just whatever, but it's actually good for us to, to war against it. All right, so then he goes on, he has the list of the pagan nations that he left there, and he mentions it in there that do not intermarriage them. He's not talking, this isn't a racial thing, it's not anything about that. It is about interfaith relationships. Do not marry someone who isn't God, Jehovah is their God. Don't marry outside your faith. Don't become unequally yoked with that, because that's a problem. Because then they end up serving their gods when you, when you get contaminated like that. So seven to eight, they keep failing the test, um, failing the test. They forgot about God. They served Baal. They served the other things. But we have the first judge that comes on the scene. In your book on page 108 in the back, it has a list of the judges there and their time frames, when they did and how long peace was there and everything. It's kind of a cool thing if you want to look at that. But Othniel, which we know is Caleb's son-in-law, was the first one. People failed the test. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And after eight years, they were miserable for eight years. They cried out to God, and he delivered them. And in 10b, we see that the Spirit of the Lord was upon um, Othniel, and he judged Israel, and he went out to war, and the Lord gave him these different people into their hands. So they went out to war. Othniel comes, God hears their voice, he, he, he uh, rallies the troops to go and to fight war, and they're going to learn how to do war. And there was peace in the land for a while, for 40 years. And then we go through the cycle again. We have um, Ead is coming on now. Ead, the people did again, they fell, they failed the test, it was even the sight of the Lord. And Ian, they cried out, and Ian comes. And this is interesting. (laughs) 
left-handed man. People would fight with their right hand. He was left-handed, so he hides a sword in his right thigh, and he goes to the, the bad guy, the fat bad guy. You like that? He was very fat. Eglong, they are a very fat man, and he's there. And they bring him a tribute, and they bring him all this nice stuff and make, make frenzy frenzy with him. And, oh, thank you, thank you, for you know, your honor. Not even thank you, but, oh, you honor me. I'm such a great guy. And then they turn. Um, he turns to leave, and he gets out, and then he goes back, and he goes to, back to Iglon, and he says, I have a message for you. I have a message from God for you. It's a secret message. So Iglon tells everyone to leave, and he's on the, in the cool room of his house or something, a kind of a private quarters. Who knows? It might be where there's his you know, bathroom or whatever, but it's his own private thing. So Eu goes in there. I hate the fact that there are two E's. I have to keep looking. Who am I talking about? Eu or Eglon? Eglon, the fat guy's in there. So Eu goes in there, and he has his message of God. It's a double-edged sword. And isn't that word of God, double-edged sword? And he shoves it in there till the hilt goes into the blubber. The hilt is the handle of the sword, which means once you get that in there and the blubber comes, it can't get it back out. Ever hear the phrase, um, the farm's been mortgaged to the hilt? Farm's been mortgaged to the hilt, which means we've mortgaged it and there's no getting it back again, okay? So he plunges this in there. I love scripture. And then all this poop comes out. It's just a massive scene. I know. (laughs) So anyways... Um, so he's dead and he gets, leaves, locks the door and then his little servants are there saying, well, he's probably relieving himself. It's been, it's been a long time, whatever. And they finally get in, he's able to get away. And what does he do? He goes and he sounds the trumpet to the Israelites. Um, and they all go down and he leads them into war. Follow me into war. And they went down and they seized them all. And they killed 10,000 people. They learned war. They learned war. He brought them into war. And the last judge in our chapter here is Shamgar, who doesn't have a whole lot to say about him, but it does say that he killed 600 Philistines with an ox gourd. An ox gourd is an eight-foot-long pole, probably hardwood or something, with a pointy end to poke the ox along, and the other end you used to scrape the pow. It was a tool. So you're goading the ox along with this. And he took that stick and he killed 600 Philistines with it. Now, there's not a whole lot said about Shamgar. It could be because it was such a well-known story at the time. They didn't say a whole lot. But it's interesting to see that he was a warrior. And again, the people were learning war. And learning to trust God, because God uses simple things like an ox goad, like Moses' staff, David's slingshot, right? He uses simple things, but in God's hands, they become mighty tools of war. So this is, as you step back from it, an analogy of the Christian life. We have got to be persistent in our trusting God, in our study of Scripture, and I applying Scripture, and talking to God, and be vigilant of the things that are around us um, so we can be found true and faithful as we are sanctified. 
God, help us to really take this seriously, to understand this and realize it. It's not just a story that was written long ago. Help us really to, to, to own it, to, to, to have it become who we are um, as soldiers for you, uh, to listen to you, to keep our eyes on you, that you would empower us to live as more than conquerors in today's world, to your glory. Amen.